0: Um, right diving in who's who's read one kings is anybody well done yes roger anybody else okay um how do you feel reading through yes yes and a lot of names a lot of kings so um i don't know have we got any history lovers in here no there's a bright spotlight here so i'm struggling okay um, so the person who read one kings is also the history lover okay that makes sense um one of my big regrets is that like back in gcse uh, in my school you had to decide between geography and history and i chose geography and don't get me wrong i love geography but i always feel that like was that was i was robbed i was robbed at the age of 14 15 whenever you do your GCSEs, because history is so key uh, whenever you you know you have dinner with somebody, you start talking about current affairs, where we are now, um, history has had an impact to where we are at present. We, we learn about the present situation through the steps we've taken in our past. So I, I kind of robbed. And um, I, I love the Bible. It's a history book. I'm sure you've all engaged with that before. It's rooted in history. The fact that archaeological finds have verified its historical reliability time and time again. Nevertheless, history can be a bit tricky. Sorry, Simon, I should have said, also you're, you're visiting and, and haven't been for a while, but we're doing this book-by-book book Bible overview. Um, yeah, 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 so um, that's where we are. Um, and uh, in 1 Kings, we, as Roger has mentioned, introduced to countless kings who are here one minute and gone the next And sometimes we're tempted to ask, do we really need all this detail? (laughs) There's a lot of detail in 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, But my response is, I think it's better to have more detail than not enough detail in in every walk of life. Even so, one commentator has said of 1 and 2 Kings, which were originally uh, one book together, that summing up around 400 years of history in just over 50,000 words isn't exhaustive at all makes the point that in actual fact, the author of 1 and 2 Kings has been very, very selective and precise in the details he wanted to share. And, you know, I would want to agree, the author, whoever they are, um, very specific. Uh, 1 Kings is, I mean, it's a hard read. It's a record of disobedience, idolatry, ungodliness on the whole. And for us readers, it serves as an explanation as to why um, there was an Assyrian captivity in 722 BC of Israel, and then there was a Babylonian captivity of, of Judah in 586 BC. In other words, one and two kings teach us that God is the ultimate ruler of history. And we see his word being fulfilled both positively, but sometimes, I guess what we'd call negatively. And, and we are left as readers, as as, as appreciators of history having to ask ourselves whether we trust that God's word is truthful. Having learned the history lessons from the past, can we trust his word for the future? Now, because I've been doing this all the way through this um, overview, I'm just going to give you a really brief overview of, of the book and then we're just going to dive into three, I think, really big practical lessons that just come forth from the book. Um, and at, at times... It will feel like I'm, we're sitting down and we're reading a, reading a bedtime um, kind of, I don't want to say story because you might think fiction, this isn't fiction, this is history, but it's that kind of feel tonight. I'm just reading you a bedtime story, um, certainly not singing and rapping as I was earlier in the service. You know, It's, it's low-key preach. <laughs> so um, simple structure then, chapters 1 to 11, focus on the United Kingdom, not the... England and and so on. This is the United Kingdom of of Israel back then. And then chapters 12 to 22 record the divided kingdom. So in chapters 1 to 11, uh, the United Kingdom, we have the death of King David and the rise and fall of his son Solomon. And during Solomon's reign, we see the empire grow really significantly. We see it admired from far and wide. Remember Queen Sheba visiting to, to, to taste something of Solomon's wisdom. And perhaps most significantly, we we see a permanent place for the temple. And that's the temple of the Lord. And it's built right in the, the center, in the heart of Jerusalem. So unlike the tabernacle, it's not moving from place to place. It's a temple built with stone. And it's set in the place at the heart of the city where God's people dwell. In other words, he's, he's coming right to the center. And he's coming for good. And he's coming to stay. Sadly, almost as soon as the temple's built, Israel starts to forget whom it was who dwelt in the temple. And it's also telling, and I'm sure you know this, that while Solomon spent only seven years building the temple to God, He spent how many years building his own palace? 13, (laughs) almost double. And so there's just snippets of, oh, maybe this isn't going so well. Uh, In chapters 12 to 22, we have the divided kingdom. Uh, Many people are shocked when they realize that um, Israel was united only under Saul, David, and Solomon. Seems so brief, unimpressive. And yet the lessons we're learning where there's pride and arrogance... Sadly, there's always going to be division. That's what we see in these books. Um, And in these chapters, 12 to 22, we see Solomon's son, Rehoboam. He acts like a tyrant dictator to his people, so much so that another leader uh, by the name of Jeroboam leads a rebellion backed by the 10 northern tribes of Israel. This leads to the kingdom being divided. Again, another date for you, 931 BC, where Rehoboam remains king in David's line over the southern tribes known as Judah and Jeroboam is seen as the king over the ten northern tribes known as Israel and then the rest of One Kings is just depressive reading. It's one bad king after another with just two, we'll say, two glimmers of hope in One Kings Um, and that's Asa and Jehoshaphat, although you might say Elijah was another glimmer of hope. So three glimmers of hope. Largely depressive reading. That's overview over, by the way. I'm not going to go any more deeper, um, any more deep. Um, it would be worth skim reading 1 Kings um, again, maybe later on tonight or, or this week, just to get a feel for the history. Three lessons, three important lessons from these, this book. So first lesson, beware of complacency aware of complacency. Just imagine in your life, you've got Mr. or Mrs. Wisdom firmly placed on the driving seat of your life. And if that's the case, then you're going to be a blessing, right? All of your decisions, they're going to be weighed and measured. You're going to make decisions that give you a sense of peace, joy, satisfaction. You're going to be a blessing to others as well. However... If you give Mr. or Mrs. Temptation, even just the tiniest opportunity, then they're going to come along and they're going to boot Mr. or Mrs. Wisdom off the driving seat. They're going to take full control, leading your life to places you never thought possible. Now, that's the case we see in One Kings. It's the case even for King Solomon, which is amazing because very often we think about his wisdom. Do you remember he prayed for wisdom? God answered that prayer in, well, quite a dramatic way. He became known as the wisest of the wise. We've mentioned Queen Sheba already tonight. Remember that episode in chapter three, which I guess pictures his wisdom for you, where um, there's two women both claiming to be mother of a child. Obviously, one woman is lying What does Solomon do? You know the story. He says, okay, right, we'll we'll solve this. We'll cut the baby in half. (laughs) And immediately when he says that, one mother says, oh, no, 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 to the other mother, you take him, you take him. Obviously, that's a mother's heart, doesn't want to harm her child. Whereas the other mother, full of envy, lies, she says, well, okay, if that's what it takes, we'll both have half a child. And in that moment, Solomon had found who the real mother was. People marveled at his wisdom, and we're told at the start of that chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, these words, Solomon loved the Lord. Friends, that's an allusion to what we're about as the church. That's Christianity. It's roots here. Just loving God. And I'm constantly telling people, Christianity isn't about doing. It's not about ritual, religion, religion. It's about relationship with a person jesus Uh, if you if you weren't here this morning for our vision sunday just please uh, watch the service online and and grapple with our new tagline and this is going to be a tagline that fuels us in the weeks months and maybe years ahead jesus whenever wherever however we're jesus people we're in love with him But sadly, all of these positives, Solomon became complacent. And I think it's a big lesson for us. You know, we might be sitting on cloud nine right now, thinking, yeah, yeah, we're in a good place. But even the wisest of kings can become complacent. And so we read in chapter 11, verses one to four, I'll read these verses to you. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, (laughs) along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, And, surprise, surprise, his wives turned away his heart. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. I think it's fairly fair to say, Solomon, he he didn't really have a taste, did he? (laughs) He He just liked women. Whoever they were, wherever they're from, he was... Just into women, full stop. And he had an insatiable appetite for more and more replicating the norms of the day for all the pagan kings out there. Now I find these verses striking because we say we need to learn lessons from history. God's word is proved true. Even negatively here is it's reliable, you can trust it. God's word said back in Deuteronomy 17, which was picked up in 1 Kings 11 that I've just read to you, verse two, that Israelite kings shouldn't marry non-Israelites because their hearts will be turned away to the religious practices of their wives' culture. Wow, this is pretty late for an ice cream van, right? <laughs> it's cold and late, he's, he's, Yeah, burning the candle at both ends. Fair play to whoever's driving that ice cream van. But friends, this is exactly what Solomon does. Verse three, he chases after all of these non-Israelite women. And it's exactly what happens with Ahab as well, who marries Jezebel, who loved Canaanite bar worship. We know what happens with them. Their hearts get turned away. And so beware of complacency. I, I preach to myself You know, maybe the temptation for you is like David and Solomon. Maybe it is relational or sexual. Maybe you're a a Christian here and you're looking for a relationship or you've got a Christian friend looking for a relationship and you wait a long time for a Christian man or woman to come into your life, but nothing seems to be happening and I feel for you. I prayed with some of you and you, you feel like you've been put up on the shelf and you're just getting dusty. And you know, the temptation then is, why don't I go outside of these church walls and um, there's a whole wide ocean of, of men and women to choose from when I do that. And I guess I just want to remind you of these lessons from this passage. Just beware. Because love is powerful and it's easy to have your heart pulled away from your first love. Jesus. I also want to preach to the those who are married in here as well. And again, I preach to myself. And um, Zoe um, uh, forwarded on to me a a talk not too long ago, which found really helpful, by the way. And um, I guess in 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 marriage, there can be seasons where things are tough, and you're not having the intimate time, which We should have in our marriages with our spouses and and we start to have you know fleeting looks elsewhere because home life is tough and we start to think the grass is greener elsewhere and in this talk that Zoe sent to me the guy was saying the grass is greener where you water it and so it's a challenge for us who are married like make sure you're watering in the right place Beware of complacency. It might not be anything to do with relationships. It could be that complacency will sharpen our lives in another area, any number of sins. And so we pray, Lord, just show me the temptation I am most likely to give in to. Because at least then if I know it, then, Lord, with your help, I can, I can better defend myself and prepare for those temptations when they come along. I can better remember scripture that's going to help me prepare for those temptations when they come along. Beware of complacency. Second lesson, leadership leaks out. I don't know if you've ever put a blob of ink on some blotting paper or tissue paper, and after a while, the ink just seeps through every millimeter of that paper, doesn't it? it spreads like wildfire. Well, that's what we've been seeing time and time again in this book by book Bible series. Leaders have an impact on people. Now, on the whole, great leaders will instill vision to the people, whereas evil leaders lead the people into all sorts of wickedness. Leadership leaks out. It's leaky. Let me very quickly read you some descriptions of some of the Israelite kings. And I challenge Toby on the the verses. You're never going to be able to keep up with this, okay? So this is how we're seeing the leaky leadership of uh, Israelite kings. Chapter... 15 verses 25 to 26, Nadab the son of Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. Chapter 15 verses 33 to 34, Basha, the son of Ahijah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. Chapter 16 verse 13 tells us that Elah Barsha's son did the same, sinned, and which he made Israel to sin. Chapter 16, verse 19 tells us that Zimri did evil in the sight of the Lord, making Israel to sin. Chapter 16, verse 25 says that King Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did it more evil than all the people before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols did toby do a good job yeah okay well done tobes but those verses they sound bleak they sound seriously bleak and that's just some of a whole list of kings who have a terrible negative impact on their nation that refrain made israel to sin some of these guys reigned for a long time they had ample time to infect the people of israel Back in 1978, some of you will remember this, a cult leader by the name of Jim Jones led 918 people to commit suicide. He won the hearts of his followers by promising a utopian society providing welfare for the community. He then convinced and forced 918 adults to drink the poison which would kill them. Now, Jim Jones, we read our history books, he was a deluded criminal and yet, the scariest thing, people actually followed him. Friends, we have to ask questions of our leaders. And as I said last week or the week before, that involves you asking questions of me. You know, I'm in a position up here behind a lectern, behind the pulpit, where you can hear what I say, and I can just say, oh, it's gospel. You don't challenge it. You've got to challenge it. If you think I say something a bit dodgy, which isn't from God's word, you come up to me and you say, Greg, tell me more about that. Where, where did that come from? Challenge me. But also pray for me. Pray for your leaders. Pray for our world leaders. And nations leaders, because these leaders are being pulled in a million different directions. And some of the directions that they're pulled actually have an impact in the church in various ways over abortion, over marriage, over freedom of religion, over education. Sometimes, you know, we are rubbing shoulders and it's impacting the life we live here on earth as a church. Pray for your nations leaders. Pray for Christian charities that that lobby and speak up for moral values, driven by Christ's values. Leadership leaks out. Thirdly and finally, simple lesson, and you could say this comes from anywhere in the Bible, but I think it especially comes from one king's trust, God's word. And with this last lesson, we, I guess, come back to where we began, namely asking that question, are we happy to take God at his word, to trust him? We're introduced to God's prophet Elijah. In chapter 17, he prophesies that the Lord is going to bring a great drought. And as prophesied, the drought comes. And he's told by God to go to the brook of uh, Cherith. And uh, this sounds amazing. Ravens are going to feed him. (laughs) Ravens, I mean birds. Uh, It's not a, a catering company back then ravens well in one sense it is in god's hands but raven birds i wonder how you would take that if you had that word from the lord don't worry greg you know money's going to be scarce this next week but ravens are going to feed you would you laugh to yourself would you chuckle <laughs> oh no god elijah trusts him chapter 17 verse 5 so he went and did according to the word of the lord and the ravens <laughs> they brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening I just love that picture. Just him sitting. Maybe he was holding his arm out and just wanted to just fly. In the, maybe, maybe they started feeding him as birds feed their other birds. And he just kind of, <laughs> I don't know. But it's a funny picture. Elijah knew that he could trust the Lord even when his words sounded unbelievable. And next, we see Elijah ask a widow from Zarephath, which is Baal worship central, by the way. He asks her whether she can trust the word of the Lord. It's mid-drought. She's trying to find food for her and her son without a husband. Uh, Back in that culture, the husband would have done all the hunting and, and, and finding the food. She doesn't have that luxury. And so, presumably, she feels death's just around the corner. And yet, Elijah, this pesky prophet, is pleading for any food that she does have. Can she trust his word? Can she trust what Elijah's saying, that your son is not going to die from hunger? Well, yes, she can. And later she sees that she can trust God's word to give her son life too. God's word can be trusted. Uh, Finally, let me just mention that amazing miracle of Mount Carmel in uh, chapter 18. Um, Some of you are smiling because you know that chapter quite well. You'll have remembered Sunday school lessons on that chapter or maybe it's just the chapter that you go to when you just want to smile on your face at how amazing your God is. Elijah on his own as prophet has a showdown with 450 Canaanite prophets of Baal and it's a competition to find out whose God is the real God. And Elijah makes an altar and lays a bull on it. The Canaanites do the same and then the competition is that the first bull and altar to catch fire and 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 be burned up and you get these 450 canaanite prophets starting to dance starting to shout up to their god and and unfortunately it's it's quite sad really what happens they then start cutting themselves because they think you know that kind of thing is going to appease their gods and call their gods to to get involved more quickly um elijah (laughs) we probably would have done the same, so I don't want to say it was a bit unfair, but he starts mocking them. <laughs> and then he, he throws a load of water on the altar that he's made. And they're like, well, it's never going to catch a light now. And just prays a simple prayer and God <sighs> burns that bull and altar up immediately. Uh, the result's obvious. God of the Bible, Yahweh, He is the real God. It's an amazing miracle. The sad thing, however, is that even after that, King Ahab continually hardened his heart against God and his prophet. We like to think that if we saw a miracle like that, we'd believe in God. The truth is, we could, friends, see the most amazing miracle. But if we can't trust God's word, we're learning that we can't trust anything he does. Do you trust God's word? As I conclude, I just want to weave all of this to Jesus. John's gospel tells us that when he comes to earth, it is a case of the word became flesh. And therefore, if we follow the flow of the Bible to its logical conclusion, when we accept God's word, we accept and embrace Jesus. If we trust God's word, then we're trusting in Jesus. Jesus, whenever, wherever, however, however. Trusting God's word like Elijah did all those years ago will for us mean trusting Jesus. It's that simple. Let me give you a few examples. How about death? So Elijah raises a widow's son. In Luke 7, Jesus sees a funeral procession taking place where a widow is wailing over the death of her only son. It's heartbreaking. Maybe you've been there. Jesus raises him in a word. Uh, three days after his own death, he rises. And when it comes to trusting someone with their eternities, we need to know that their words have substance. people thought Karl Marx's words had substance, but now people flock to see his tomb in Highgate Cemetery. You can pay eight eight or ten quid and have a little tour around the cemetery, see his his place of burial. People travel to Jerusalem today. They go to the, the garden tomb in the Holy Sepulchre. The thing is, Jesus' body isn't there. The tombs are empty. I said that I wasn't going to rap, but I've put some rap lyrics down here in, in the lyrics of Lecrae and Shy Lin. I think I've shared these with you before. Buddha is dead. Mohammed is dead. Gandhi and Hailey Selassie are dead. Elijah Mohammed is dead. However, Jesus is alive. <laughs> I like that. He's alive. How about suffering? Suffering around us. Suffering we've been praying about tonight. the Suffering in our own lives maybe. Jesus doesn't feed us lies. He doesn't promise us Christians health, wealth and prosperity in the here and now. He doesn't. When that comes, it's a blessing. It's not promised. One day we will see him face to face in glory and I guess then... We won't even be thinking about hard times, just seeing him face to face. What will we do? There's that song, you know, will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? Will I fall at my knees and worship you? We won't be thinking about prosperity then and what other persons got compared to us. That's the promise, being in his presence. But not for the here and now. Sometimes Christians... Really lovely Christians, the kind of Christians that we say, I wish I was more like. Sometimes those people who surrendered all to the Lord get ill. Chronic illness. Sometimes they get cancer, Parkinson's, malaria, bipolar. All sorts of debilitating diseases, mental illnesses. It's horrible, it's heart-wrenching. But Jesus also has plenty of comforting words for those seasons of life. Like in Romans 8, uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, So friends, if you've got a health problem right now, can you trust Jesus at his word here? Can you trust that in some way through your suffering, God is working for your good and for the good of others too? Can you trust him that there is purpose in your hurt. Because friends, when somebody can put that kind of trust in God, when the rubber hits the road, that is when the world looks in and it says, I want what you have. Finally, how about your families? Wider families maybe. Is your son gonna survive his new post? You know, you seem so far away from home. How will my mum cope now that my dad's died? Will my daughter get the grade she needs? My sister be okay? Our families are hopefully kind of close to us. And, and you know, truth being told, we can worry about them more than we worry about anybody else. But again, Jesus says, Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Can I take Jesus' word that God's in control of everything, including my family, to heart? Am I simply happy to just lift them up to the Lord and keep on doing that? Well, friends, there are the three lessons, I think, um, 1 Kings teases out in, in a quite an obvious way. I hope they've been helpful. We're going to...